0: You are listening to a message from the Living Word Community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Thank you, Dan, for that uh, kind introduction. Not sure how dynamic we're going to be today, but the Lord is present and the Lord is good, and he is the one that we depend on, he is the one that we count on. You know, I I was thinking to myself that in some church traditions, the preacher never preaches without music going on behind him every Sunday. Now that's not necessarily Living Words tradition, but because we are right next to the Mummers Parade staging area, that is being provided for us. I do, I do apologize, Howard Travers texted me and said that because of the rain yesterday, that the Mummer's Day Parade was going to move from yesterday, obviously usually it's on January 1st that it was going to move to today. Um, so I did check the parade route and it said it was going to be on South Broad Street. So I thought we're going to be fine, it's going to be on South Broad Street. But obviously this is the staging area which is not officially part of the parade route but certainly made things a little interesting if you were trying to get here in person today. Um, Right now, fortunately, the uh, roar outside is kind of dull. Hopefully it's gonna stay that way for the next, I don't know, two or three hours, however long I go. Um, But we'll see. But one thing is clear that if it does get a lot louder, it will require a little bit something more from us. It will require a little bit something more from me. Particularly if they play a song that I recognize. Fortunately, most of the songs they play, I, I don't recognize. But they do play some that are from like, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. And it may be harder for me to preach with that background as well. But the Lord is here. And, you know, any time that we do what the Lord asks of us, it honors him. But I just also feel like when we do what the Lord asks of us and it's a little bit harder, that really honors him. You know, there are times that it's it's easy to enter into the Lord's presence. There are times that it's easy to concentrate on his word or to walk in obedience in the way that he wants us to. And, and, and every time that we do those things, that honors him. But, you know, there are a lot of times where it's not really that easy. And it maybe isn't even that pleasant. And I feel like when we do what the Lord wants of us under those circumstances, it really honors him. You know, we just took the bread and the cup. Going to the cross was not. It was not easy for Jesus. It was not an easy step of obedience for him to do what the Father was asking when he went to the cross. And that is part of the reason why it was such an incredibly powerful and glorious and redemptive and transforming event for all eternity for all humanity and so yeah i would love for there not to be the chaos outside that's there right now (laughs) you know i was thinking to myself well lord you could have held off the rain yesterday and they could have had this parade yesterday but you know what as we are here and if you are on zoom as we are choosing to press in as we are choosing to do what we believe the lord is asking of us particularly under maybe more challenging, or as Elena aptly put it, more annoying circumstances. (laughs) You know, the Lord is going to be honored. The Lord is going to be honored. And so that's really what we're praying has already happened. And that's what we're praying is going to continue to happen as well. So let's take a moment just to pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to take the bread and to take the cup, to remember, Lord Jesus, that incredible act of devotion and obedience and sacrifice that you made for each one of us. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to lift up our voices, to lift up our hands, to worship you, to say thank you and to rejoice in you for all that you have done for us and father we thank you now for an opportunity to spend some time considering your word together and father we know that it is your word and we know that you desire to speak to us your people and so father I pray that you would help each one of us myself included Because, Lord, we may be a little annoyed and we may be a little distracted, and it may be a little bit harder for us to concentrate on you and on the message that you have for us this morning. But, Lord, as each one of us makes a decision to do that, we are convinced that you will be honored. We are convinced that you will be glorified. And, Father, more than anything else, that's what we desire. That's what we desire. Lord, we want you to be lifted up. We want your name to be honored. We want your name to be glorified. We have been praying that that would happen in the city of Philadelphia. We have been praying that that would happen in the midst of this community of believers. We have been praying that that would happen around your globe. And so, Father, that's what we want to see happen right now in this place for your name to be glorified father we thank you so much for the opportunity that you have been giving us these these past couple of weeks to be reading and meditating on the accounts of your son's birth thank you for the power of that glorious message that has been recorded for us and now as we take this time together this morning give us your wisdom Give us your wisdom and give us your heart and give us your understanding. May we genuinely be changed and encouraged and strengthened and challenged because of the time that we will spend together in your word. And so, Jesus, we do pray, as always, we pray these things only in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully you all have been enjoying reading through Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and Luke chapters 1 and 2. That's what we have been doing the last couple of weeks. Again, not on a, a set schedule, but just at your own pace, rereading, slowing down as frequently as you would like to. Last week, Carl shared with us from the end of Matthew chapter 1. Uh, even though we were away, we were, I was able to listen to his message uh, later this week, uh, excuse me, last week, Um, And really appreciated his examination of Joseph and just Joseph's availability and Joseph's willingness to be used. uh, A great encouragement for all of us. Where I am going to be this morning is in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2. And we're actually going to pick it up in verse 21. And this is Luke recording for us what happened pretty much immediately after the birth of Christ. So Jesus has come into this world, the shepherds have visited, they have gone back to their place rejoicing, and now Luke is going to begin to tell us what transpired over the next couple of weeks. Picking it up in verse 21. It says on the eighth day when uh, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated or is to be set apart to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what he had said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons now let's just pause there and look at this a little bit more carefully before we continue reading in Luke chapter 2 so there are two significant periods of time that transpired after the birth of Jesus and Luke is making us aware of those two significant periods of time that transpired after the birth of Jesus Now for some of us, or even maybe for many of us, we might not be super familiar with these two significant periods of time. And so a little bit of the background for this is found as we read in the law of the Lord, or in the law of Moses. When you go all the way back to Genesis, as God is dealing with Abram who would become Abraham. And as God is making incredible promises to Abraham, saying that he's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand in the seashore, that he's going to be a blessing, that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him, and that the land that he was simply passing through was going to be a permanent inheritance for his descendants. And that everyone who blessed him, God himself would bless. And everyone who cursed him, that being Abraham, God himself would curse. Incredible promises. Incredible promises that the Lord was making to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 17, the Lord said, and this is my covenant with you. For those of you who were part of the Exodus study, we spent a little bit of time talking about covenant. A covenant is a binding relationship, oftentimes sealed with the, the shedding of blood. It was basically God committing himself to an individual or to a group of people. It was God declaring, I am going to be your God and you are going to be your people. You are going to be my people and I am going to be faithful to you, and I am going to protect you, and I am going to provide for you. That was the heart of covenant. And it's interesting because in Genesis chapter 17, what the Lord says to Abraham, and this is my covenant to you, that every male child on the eighth day after their birth will be circumcised, and this will be my covenant with you. An everlasting covenant. And so God established circumcision as part of that covenant between himself and his people. And so when it says in Luke chapter 2 verse 21, on the eighth day, on the eighth day after the birth of Jesus, he was circumcised. He was simply being the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made thousands of years before with Abraham. And so, what Luke is telling us is that everything that transpired, everything that Jesus did, even everything that happened to Jesus when he was only eight days old, was in fulfillment of all that God had promised, was in fulfillment of all that God had said would take place. You may remember that when Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, he approaches John the Baptist. And Jesus says, you need to baptize me. And John is like, whoa! Me baptize you? Jesus, you should baptize me. And Jesus gives a very interesting response. He says, no, this should be done for righteousness' sake. Jesus was doing everything in absolute perfect accordance with the law that the Father had given to his people for hundreds of years. So on the eighth day after his birth, in keeping with all righteousness, in keeping with the covenant that God had established with Abram, Jesus was circumcised. And of course it was normal on that day of circumcision that a male child was named. And so on that eighth day he was given the name Jesus the name salvation because he had come of course to save the people of God but then in the next verse in verse 22 Luke talks about another period of time it says and when the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed now there was a second period of time that the law of Moses required for the birth of either a male son or a female son. And it was a time of purification. So on the eighth day after a male son had been born, he was to be circumcised. But then 33 days were to be set aside after the birth of a male son for a time of ritual cleansing. Remember, there was a huge part of the law of Moses that had to do with ritual purity, ritual cleansing, outward acts that people had to perform, that people had to adhere to so that they could approach the presence of the Lord. And there were certain things that would defile them. There were certain things that would keep them from entering the presence of the Lord. And then there were certain things that were asked of them, in order to be purified, so that they could once again approach the presence of the Lord. This was a huge part of the law of Moses. It was a huge part of how God was beginning to reveal himself to his people through the law of Moses. Now, we're not going to take the time today to go into any more detail, but basically, if you want to have it summarized, what the Lord was saying is, I am holy. I am your God. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be with you. But don't let any of that for a moment allow you to forget that I am holy and you are not. That is the heart of this aspect of the law of Moses. I am holy and you are not. And you have to understand that I cannot be approached casually. I cannot be approached on a whim. I cannot be approached just whenever you feel like it, in whatever way you choose. I am holy and you are not. And I have to do something to you. I have to do something for you to make you holy enough to approach me. Now, of course, as followers of Jesus Christ, we realize how powerful that message is. Without Jesus Christ, we are not made holy. And if we are not made holy, we cannot approach God. That was part of what the Law of Moses was teaching the people of God. Without Jesus Christ, we are not made holy. And if we are not made holy, we cannot approach God. So every time we approach the Father, every time we come into his presence, every time we enjoy one of its benefits, it's only because he has made us holy. He hasn't changed. He is still as holy as he was when he gave the law of Moses. He hasn't changed. He has changed us. He has changed us. He has done what was required to make us holy so that we could approach him. That's what he's done. That's what he's done. So part of The laws of ritual purity part of the laws of cleansing required that a mother who had just given birth to a male son isolate herself for 33 days isolate herself for 33 days and then after that time of cleansing after that time of setting herself apart she was to approach the place where the Lord was dwelling whether it was the tabernacle or whether it was the temple. And she was to come with a sacrifice. She was to come with a sacrifice. Now the background for this is Leviticus chapter 12. But it's interesting because the passage that Luke quotes from first is actually Exodus chapter 13. In verse 23 he says, Every firstborn male is to be holy, or is to be set apart, or is to be consecrated to me. God established this principle in Exodus chapter 13. Now, what was God doing? What was God doing in Exodus chapter 13? As he was declaring to Israel, every firstborn male is mine. Every firstborn male belongs to me. Every firstborn male is to be holy to me. In Exodus chapter 13, what was God doing? He was saving Israel by his mighty hand. If you read Exodus chapter 13, and we won't take the time to do that together today. If you read Exodus chapter 13, which is part of the background for Luke chapter 2, on three different occasions, God is saying, By my mighty hand, I am delivering you. I am saving you. I am rescuing you. I am taking you out of bondage in Egypt. And I am sending you on your way to the land that I promised. YOU ARE BECOMING MY PEOPLE AND I AM SHOWING UP IN A WAY THAT I HAVE NOT IN THE PAST. THAT'S WHAT WAS HAPPENING IN EXODUS CHAPTER 13. GOD WAS SAVING, GOD WAS DELIVERING, GOD WAS REDEEMING ON A GRAND SCALE. IT SAYS THAT WHAT GOD ever dared to do something as great as take one nation living in the midst of another and literally pulling them out of that nation and making them his own what God has ever dared to do that that's the declaration of the exodus only our God has done that only our God has done that that's what was happening God was showing up When he was saying the firstborn male belongs to me, when God was saying that in Exodus chapter 13, God was showing up. God was putting himself on display. God was saving his people. And as this firstborn male was being dedicated to the Lord, was being consecrated to the Lord, as this helpless little infant, Jesus, was being set apart to the Lord God was showing up God was saving God was delivering God was redeeming in a way that he never had before and the world was only beginning to get a glimpse of what he was about to do but all of that Luke was putting in front of us All of that he was saying. What God did when he brought Israel out of Egypt was glorious. But it wasn't even remotely as good as what was about to happen. Because this little infant named Jesus had come into the world. And as the firstborn male of Mary, he was being dedicated to the Lord. And what he was going to do was going to bring about salvation on a scale that the world had never seen before. But then Luke gives us another detail. And this is more in line with the background of Leviticus chapter 12. Because what Leviticus chapter 12 says is that when the mother who has given birth After her 33 days of cleansing for a male child, or in the case of her giving birth to a female child, it was 66 days of cleansing. We won't get into why there was a distinction. But when she presented herself to the Lord after her 33 days of cleansing, she was to bring actually a lamb as a whole burnt offering, and then she was to bring a dove or a pigeon as a sin offering. And as these were offered at the tabernacle or the temple of the Lord, she and the child were ritually cleansed and now were able to approach the Lord. But it's interesting here because Luke actually makes a point of emphasizing that Mary and Joseph did not bring a lamb and a pigeon or a dove. In fact, what it says is that they brought two pigeons or two doves. Because the last verse of Leviticus chapter 12 actually says if the family is too poor to have the financial means to bring a lamb and a bird, they can bring two birds instead. And so right there Luke is reminding us of just how incredibly humble the birth of Jesus really was. He was not born into a wealthy family. In fact, he was born into a family where they didn't even have the financial means to offer a lamb and a bird, but instead had to offer two birds. And so again, for most of us, that detail might be missed because we're probably not familiar with Leviticus 12. We're probably not familiar with what was required of a family who had just given birth to their firstborn male child or to any child, really. But what Luke is is subtly reminding us of is that Jesus was willing to identify himself with all of us in our greatest poverty, in our greatest weakness, in our greatest emptiness. And of course, material poverty was only part of that. More than anything, Jesus was willing to identify himself with us in our spiritual poverty, because that's real poverty. Financial poverty is hard, but spiritual poverty is crushing. And Jesus came to set us free from that. Jesus came to set us free from that. He didn't set us free from that by himself coming as an extravagantly rich king. He didn't come to set us free from that as the wealthy guy who was just handing out hundreds on the corner of the street. He came to set us free from that by himself becoming poor. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We are made rich through his poverty through his deprivation through his lack through his willingness to set it all aside we are made rich and really not necessarily materially rich material riches are fine and if the lord sends those your way that's a great thing but true riches true wealth is spiritual riches spiritual wealth that's what jesus came to offer and he gives that to us Freely, extravagantly, abundantly. So as Luke just quite simply quotes that last verse of Leviticus chapter 12, bring two pigeons or two doves, he's reminding us of the incredible financial lack that Jesus was born into. But through that lack, we are made wealthy. We are made rich in him. Well, let's keep reading because two of my favorite characters of the birth stories of Jesus are mentioned here in Luke chapter 2. Picking it up in verse 25. I apologize. This thing seems like it's right in my eyes. Maybe my glasses are working. Maybe the Lord's healing my eyes. Maybe I see better now. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were waiting For the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon and Anna. As I said, two of my favorite characters around the birth narratives of Jesus. We don't know much about them. In fact, all we know about them, we just read together. So we are given enough to make them incredibly engaging, incredibly exciting characters associated with the birth of Jesus. But there is certainly more that could be said that is not given to us. But the theme for me that has always struck me when I look at these two individuals is one that we find in verse 25 and one that we find in verse 38. It says that among the many ways that Simeon is described, it says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now again, consolation is not really a word that we use that much. It's not really a word that we use in this way that much. So a a, a better translation, and maybe if you have a different English translation in front of you, a better translation might be the redemption, or the deliverance, or the setting free of Israel. So Simeon was a man who was waiting. And what he was waiting for was for God to deliver Israel. Now if you jump to verse 38, the last verse that we read together, when Anna recognizes the baby Jesus and begins to thank God and extol God, she begins to speak to a group of people. And the way Luke describes this group of people at the end of verse 38 is these were people who were waiting for the redemption or for the deliverance or for the salvation of Jerusalem. Now Luke uses the exact same word there in verse 25 as he does in verse 38. So Simeon was a man who was waiting. And Anna addressed a group of people who were waiting. So what I want to take a couple minutes to talk about together today is waiting. Waiting. A few months ago, I couldn't remember exactly when I was going to text Carl and ask him, Carl preached a sermon, an excellent sermon, on waiting on the Lord. And what Carl did was very, very profound and very, very challenging, because what he said is, yes, it's important for us to be waiting on the Lord, but maybe the Lord is waiting on you. Now, I don't know how many of you remember that message, but it was an incredible turning of that phrase that sometimes we find ourselves waiting on the Lord and as we're going to see today hopefully all of us are waiting on the Lord but oftentimes the Lord is waiting on us and it's important for us to recognize that there may be something that the Lord is waiting on us to do even as we are waiting on the Lord but we're not going to emphasize that that was Carl's message it was an excellent message what we are going to look at today is more on the aspect of waiting on the Lord. But as we look more carefully at what Simeon was waiting for and what Anna's audience was waiting for, what we see is that they were waiting for something that God had promised. They were waiting for something that God had promised. Simeon, it says, was waiting for the salvation, the setting free, the deliverance of Israel. And Anna's audience, who were hearing the incredible words that she was declaring, even though Luke doesn't record those for us, hearing those incredible words that she was declaring, it says they were waiting for the redemption or for the deliverance of Jerusalem. You see, what Simeon understood, what Anna understood, what Anna's audience understood, was that for hundreds of years, God had been making promises. For hundreds of years... God had been making promises. You could see it in his conversations with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that are recorded for us in the book of Genesis. We made reference to part of that conversation a few moments ago. We could see those promises in the conversations between himself, the Lord, and Moses. We could see those promises to David and other righteous kings. We could see those promises as the prophets spoke and declared the word of the Lord. You see, God was always speaking of incredibly good things that he was going to do, incredibly powerful ways that he was going to move and deliver and redeem his people. As we read the account of the Old Testament, we see over and over and over again God is making promise. God is saying, I'm going to do this. I will do this. You will see this happen. That's the kind of God we serve. God is always looking to the future. Now, that's not the only way he looks. But he is always looking to the future. And as he is declaring the future to us, whether it's to Abraham, some. I don't know, 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, or whether it's to us right now. God is looking to the future and declaring to us the good things that he is going to do. So more than anyone else, we are to be a people of hope. No matter what we see happening right now, and there are some terrible things happening right now, we are never to be a people that lose hope. And that isn't because we see a lot of great things happening. We do see good things happening. But the reason why we never lose hope is because God has promised better things. God has promised. How could Abraham die in faith, not having seen the fulfillment of what God had promised him? Because he knew. He knew that one day God would bring it about. He realized he was not going to live to see it. Isaac didn't live to see it. Jacob didn't live to see it. Moses didn't live to see it. David didn't live to see it. All of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, none of them lived to see it, but all of them died in faith. All of them. All of them died with hope. Not because they lived to see it, but because they knew God would do it. And that was enough. So no matter what they saw, the horrific disobedience of the people of God, the captivity and the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, no matter what they saw, no matter what they experienced, they never ultimately lost hope because they could always say, but God has promised, but God has said, and he is going to do it he's going to do it that's what Simeon understood that's what Anna understood that's what the audience to whom Anna was speaking that's what they understood and for Simeon and Anna they were given the almost unimaginable blessing of hearing the lord say but you will live to see it You know, Simeon sees the baby Jesus for a couple of minutes. And you know what we just read? He says, Lord, it's enough. I can die. It's enough. I've seen your salvation. I've seen the light of the Gentiles. I've seen the glory of Israel. And even just a few minutes of seeing it, that's enough. You can call me home in peace. 84 years old Anna was, 84 years old. And she also was given the incredible privilege of even just for a few minutes seeing the baby Jesus. And for her, it was enough. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting, generation after generation after generation that died in faith, that died in hope, that did not live to see these things fulfilled, finally there came that one generation that Simeon and Anna were part of that did in fact live to see it. And that's why they can't contain their joy. That's why they can't contain their exaltation. That's why they can't even for a moment do anything else but just spontaneously worship the Lord and prophesy and speak encouraging words to others who were waiting as well. Because that's the only reasonable response to what they had just seen with their own eyes. Simeon had been waiting. Anna had been waiting. Anna's audience had been waiting. And now they saw it fulfilled. But it's so important that we emphasize that what they were waiting for was what God had promised. It wasn't just their own selfish desire. Yeah. Absolutely. Did Simeon want to see the people of God redeemed? Of course he did. Did Anna want to see the city of Jerusalem set free? Of course she did. But it wasn't just their own selfish, personal desire. What they were waiting for was exactly what God had been promising. Exactly what God had. Wasn't, had been promising. And that's why it was impossible for them to ever be disappointed. Even if they had not been that generation that lived to see the salvation of God come into this world. Even if they had not been part of that generation that lived to see the light of the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. They would not have been disappointed because they were waiting on what God had promised. So, of course, you know now what question I'm going to ask of us. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? I'm afraid too many times in my own heart, what I'm waiting for isn't necessarily something that God has promised. And that's why I am susceptible to Disappointment. Because oftentimes, what I find happening in my own heart is I'm waiting for something that maybe God has not necessarily promised. Because if I am waiting for what God has promised, it is impossible for me to be disappointed. Because even if I don't live to see it, I know it will come. Remember, we said it Abraham did not die disappointed. Isaac did not die disappointed. Jacob did not die disappointed, even though they did not live to see the fulfillment of the promises that God had made them. If I am waiting on what God has promised, it's impossible for me to be disappointed. Now let me give you a really silly example that if you know me well, you can understand this. I am waiting for Cleveland to win a World Series. The last time Cleveland won a World Series was 1948. It's the longest drought in sports in North America. I don't even remember now how many years that is. It's 72 years. People have lived their entire lives and not seen Cleveland win a World Series. And I don't think they're close to winning one. So I'm waiting for that. Now, that is not necessarily something that God has promised. God has not promised me that Cleveland is going to win a World Series in my lifetime or ever. So I may be disappointed. I really may be disappointed because I'm waiting for something that God has not promised. So, well, based on the roster they have, I'm probably going to be disappointed for a while. But if I'm waiting for something that God has promised, it's impossible for me To be disappointed. It's impossible for me to be disappointed. Now there are some hindrances. There are some challenges that we face when we are waiting for something that God has promised. The biggest one, at least for me, is impatience. You've heard me say it many times and unfortunately it's still an area of sanctification that the Lord is working on. I'm an incredibly impatient person. And so one of the challenges that I face as I'm waiting on the promises of God is I become very impatient, and I want things now. But as we all know, God's timing is not our timing. And God doesn't work on our schedule. And so one of the challenges that we face in waiting for the good things that God has promised is our own impatience. Another one is discouragement. We get discouraged when we don't see the promises of God coming about in the way that we want and in the timing that we want. So it's not so much that we necessarily get impatient about them, but we get very discouraged. As we said, it's very easy to lose hope as we look at the circumstance around us. There's a lot of very hopeless things that are going on right now. So one of the other ways that the enemy attacks us as we are waiting on the promises of God is that he attempts to discourage us. He attempts to really drag us down. Where is your God? Why isn't your God acting? Why isn't your God doing something? God, the the enemy loves to put those doubts in our head about our God. So one of the other challenges that we face when we're waiting on the promises of God is discouragement. Another one, and praise God it's gone, I just noticed the music is gone. But another one that we face is distraction. While we are waiting for something to happen, it's so easy for us to get distracted You know, I look at people who are waiting. I got my COVID booster on Thursday, and I was at the CVS or the Rite Aid waiting for it. And there were two young people who were waiting as well, just, you know, on their phones, on their phones. Because that's what we do. When we're waiting, we distract ourselves with our phones. If I even have to wait for 30 seconds, I distract myself with my phone because I have it. I can do it. I can look at it. I can distract myself. But unfortunately, If we're waiting on the promises of God, if we're waiting for something that God has declared and we get distracted, we're probably not going to wait in the way that he wants us to. And so that's another hindrance to us as we are waiting on the promises of God. So sometimes we're just simply waiting for something that God has not promised. You have to take that to the Lord and say, Lord, is this something you have promised me? And if it's not, you can still wait for it, absolutely. I'm still going to wait for Cleveland to win a World Series. But I need to be ready that I may be disappointed because that isn't necessarily something that God has promised me. We become impatient, another hindrance. We become discouraged, another hindrance. We become distracted, another hindrance. We are given just the smallest glimpse of how Simeon And Anna waited because they were not impatient. They were not discouraged. They were not distracted. In fact, the way that Luke describes Simeon and Anna to us is actually amazing. Simeon was a righteous and godly man who had been revealed things by the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, this is pre-Pentecost, Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet died had not yet returned to the Father had not yet given the Spirit the way he would on the day of Pentecost Simeon was a man led by the Spirit before Pentecost he was in fact a righteous and godly man and so we are given a small glimpse into how Simeon was waiting He was waiting by living a godly life, by living a life of obedience, by allowing the Spirit of God to speak to him and to lead him and to direct him. How was Anna waiting? Well, it says Anna was waiting by being in the temple day and night, fasting and praying. That was the main descriptor of her life. If someone was to give a two-phrase summary of your life, would it be that, hey, she waits in the presence of the Lord day and night with fasting and prayer. That's the main way that she was described. That's how she was waiting. You see, what Simeon and Anna remind us of is that waiting is not really a waste of time. Often, in my own perspective, in my own very fallen, sinful, broken way of seeing things, anytime time I have to wait... My first reaction is, this is a waste of my time. If I'm getting stuck in traffic, if I'm waiting in a line at the bank, if I'm, you know, whatever, all the times that I am forced to wait, my immediate reaction is, this is a waste of time. Well, Simeon and Anna waited for years. It seems like Simeon and Anna waited for pretty much their entire life. Anna was already 84. Simeon was just praying, Lord, take me home now, I'm ready. So Simeon and Anna had waited their whole life. Well, imagine how easy it would have been for them to say, Lord, this is a waste of time. But you see, that's not at all how they spent their time waiting. They saw it as an opportunity, they saw this lifetime of waiting not just an hour in a line. They saw this lifetime of waiting as an opportunity to draw close to the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord, to walk in obedience to the Lord, to be led by the Lord, to live a life for the Lord. How much different my waiting would be if I saw it that way how much different my waiting would be if instead of saying, Lord, this is a waste of time, if I said instead, Lord, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity. Because you see, what we actually see is possible is that in our periods of waiting, God is able, if we let him, to change us. God is able to change us. And I wonder if he actually changes us more when we're waiting than when we're running around at a thousand miles an hour. I mean, God is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants, however he wants. But I wonder if it isn't oftentimes in those periods of waiting, those periods that from a natural sense seem like a colossal waste of time, I wonder if it isn't in those times that God actually changes us more. Because while we are waiting on the Lord, hopefully what we are doing is we are actively waiting. See, I thought about this in terms of like just passively waiting, like sitting in the doctor's office and just looking at, You know, the magazines, I didn't even know they made magazines anymore, but there's always someone in a doctor's office, so somebody's making magazines. You're just passively waiting. You're just looking at that TV that's playing the, the daytime soap opera that's garbage. You're just passively waiting. But you see, when you look at Simeon and Anna, they were actively waiting. They were actively waiting. They were praying. They were seeking. They were prophesying. They were fasting. They were in the presence of the Lord. They were listening for the voice of the Spirit. They were actively waiting. And if I approach waiting that way, then God has an amazing opportunity to change me. In those periods that naturally seem like a waste of time, if we are actively waiting instead of passively waiting, God has an opportunity to change us. The last thing that I'm going to talk about here is just waiting in the short term and waiting in the long term. You know, there are short-term things that we wait for. And I feel like in some ways those are sometimes the hardest You know, as I spend time with the Lord, I try to wait on the Lord just to be quiet in His presence, not necessarily to pray verbally, not necessarily to sing, not necessarily to read Scripture, but just simply to try to wait on the Lord. And sometimes that is so hard, because my mind just goes everywhere except where I want it to go, which is just thinking about the Lord. I'm thinking about, well, sports sometimes. I'm thinking about what I've got to do next. I'm thinking about whatever. And so sometimes we're waiting in the short term, and it's such a challenge not to be distracted. But a big part of the Christian life, I believe, is waiting for things in the short term. And I believe that's why the church has used that phrase, waiting on the Lord, for so many years, because it is such a powerful and necessary dynamic of how we as Christians are called upon to wait. We should try each day to take some time just simply to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord. And of course, there are other things in the short term that we are waiting for, milestones that the Lord has put in front of us. You know, Flora Baker was waiting for her retirement. Students wait for their graduation. So there are other really good things that God puts in front of us to be waiting for. And sometimes those are hard. So God has called us to wait for things in the short term. But of course, the entirety of the Christian life Is waiting the entirety of the Christian life is waiting because we are all waiting in the long term for the return of Jesus Christ you know it is one of the most repeated topics of the New Testament almost every single book of the New Testament talks about the return of Jesus Christ And talks about what will happen when he comes. See, because what the Holy Spirit made clear to that first church, to that first century church, is the first great period of waiting had ended. That first great period of waiting was until Messiah would come the first time. So Simeon and Anna were part of that gloriously privileged generation. That actually lived to see the end of that first grand period of waiting when Messiah came into the world the first time. But as soon as Jesus returned to the Father, the New Testament church clearly understood that the second great period of waiting had begun. The second great period of waiting began the moment that Jesus returned to the Father. And we are in the midst of it. That second great period of waiting is the waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there's almost no book in the New Testament that in one way or another doesn't mention it as our great, unshakable hope. So in that sense, the entirety of each one of our lives is a life of waiting. And so if you're like me and you hate waiting, God is saying, well, you really need to change your attitude because I have called you all to wait until my son returns. The Apostle Paul talks about this a little bit in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read a couple verses from Romans chapter 8. Jeff Garris, when he was sharing his Advent word on hope, actually made a reference to Romans chapter 8. But Romans chapter 8, let's just look at one verse, verse 19. It says the creation waits in eager expectation or with deep desire for the sons of God to be revealed. All of creation is waiting. The birds, they're waiting. The trees, they're waiting. The ocean, it's waiting. The sun, moon, and stars, they are waiting. Every time you look at them, give glory to God, but also say, wow, I know you guys are waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for your full glory to be revealed. They are waiting for Karen Runkle. They are waiting for Karen Runkle's full glory to be revealed. The trees on 46th Street are looking at Karen Runkle and saying, Hey, Karen, when is your full glory going to be revealed? Well, when is our full glory as sons and daughters of God? When is that going to be revealed? When Jesus Christ comes again. That's what creation is waiting for. Creation is like, I can't wait to see how awesome you guys are going to look when God's full glory is revealed in you. The trees are straining, the grasses are straining, the ocean is straining, the sun is rising and saying, I can't wait, I can't wait. Creation, with a deep desire, with an eager longing, is waiting for the return of Jesus Christ Because when Jesus Christ comes again, his full glory is revealed in us. That's what the Apostle Paul says in that verse. That's the context of our life. Along with all of creation, hopefully we are with a deep desire, with an eager longing, waiting as well for God's glory to be fully revealed in us. Sons and daughters of God. Let's jump down to verse 23. You could preach 20 sermons from Romans chapter 8. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly just like the trees and the birds and all the critters. Just like them, we are also waiting eagerly what for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies when are our bodies redeemed see if you die right now you go to be with Jesus but your body is burned in a crematorium it's put in the ground and the worms get it whatever happens to your body it's not being redeemed Your body is not being redeemed if you die today. Your spirit, who you are, goes to be in the presence of the Lord. But your body is not redeemed. When is your body redeemed? When is your body redeemed? What are you eagerly longing for? What are you groaning for along with all of creation? You are groaning for the redemption of your body. But when does that happen? Not when you die. It happens when. When Jesus Christ comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. What does that mean? I thought the dead in Christ were with Jesus. Well, they are, of course. What Paul is talking about is the dead in Christ, their bodies will rise first. Your body is not redeemed until Jesus comes again. Your body is not redeemed until Jesus comes again. If you die, praise God, you go to be with the Lord, but that is not the end. Your body goes into the ground. Your body does whatever your loved ones decide to do with it once you're gone. Your body is not redeemed until Jesus comes again. But when He comes, the dead in Christ, they rise first. But then those of us Who maybe will be like Simeon and Anna, who will live to see the return of Jesus Christ. There will be a generation on this planet that will live to see the return of Jesus Christ. Paul says they will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at that last trumpet, these corruptible bodies will be changed. You can't inherit the kingdom of God in this body. Why? Because this body gets sick, this body gets weak, this body dies. You can't inherit eternity in this body. Either this body goes to the ground when you die or at the moment of Jesus Christ's return, he changes it for you. That's the redemption of our bodies. That's what Paul says in verse 23 of Romans 8. That's what we are eagerly longing for. That's what we are groaning for. That's what the Spirit of God who lives in us is groaning for. Those who are in the presence of the Lord that are revealed in the book of the Revelation, what are they saying to the Lord? They're saying, Lord, how long, how long, how long do we have to wait for what? For the return of Jesus Christ. For final vindication. For the end of the salvation that you have started. How long? How long? And the Lord says, wait a little while longer. Even the saints in heaven, they're waiting. All the saints that have been part of this community, they've gone home to be with the Lord. They're in the presence of the Lord. But you know what they're doing? They are waiting. They are waiting. We are waiting. Don't let the distractions And the demands and the irritations and the brokenness of this life in any way hinder you from remembering daily you are living a life of waiting. And that's exactly what God wants. That's exactly what he wants. He wants you to wake up each morning and say, Lord, I'm waiting. I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on that moment when the full glory of your work of salvation in your sons and daughters is revealed. I'm waiting on that moment when this body will be fully redeemed and able to enter your eternal kingdom to live with you forever. I am waiting. I am waiting. There will be a generation that will live to see that. We may be in the presence of the Lord. We may be on planet earth. That's up to him. But the one thing that is true is everyone who has been waiting, whether it's the Old Testament saints in that first great period of waiting, whether it's the New Testament saints in the second great period of waiting, when Jesus Christ comes again, we will all be rejoicing in a way we never have before. That's what we're living for. That's what we're praying for. That's why we're getting up each morning and breathing his air and eating his food and wearing his clothes, to wait in eager expectation, to wait in eager longing, to wait with hope and excitement and anticipation to that glorious day when he will come. That's the mission of the church. But we're not waiting passively. We're not going off into our bunker. We're not having an isolate mentality. We are waiting actively. We are seeking and praying, and fasting, and pressing into the presence of God, and living a godly life, and living a righteous life, and doing all of that, we are waiting actively. The Christian life is a life of active, pursuing, waiting. It's not a waste of time. It's only a waste of time if you make it a waste of time. Waiting is some of the most precious, valuable, incredible time That God has given us that's the way we need to see it that's the way Simeon and Anna saw it that's the way Abraham Isaac and Jacob saw it whether we live to see the return of Jesus Christ or not that's not the most important thing because we will see it that's what matters so whatever is going on out there whatever is seeking to steal our hope distract us discourage us hinder us trip us up if we focus on the greatest hope of the scriptures the return of Jesus Christ our hope is unshakable our hope is unshakable because he will come he will come let's pray well heavenly father as always we just thank you so much because you are just so good you are so good And you're so good to us in so many different ways. And Father, even just in this brief time that we've had together this morning, just to to look at your your servants, Simeon and Anna, who who literally spent their whole lives waiting. And at that last moment, even just for a few minutes, they saw the infant Jesus. And they said, you know what, that's enough. That's enough. God, and and we have experienced Jesus in such a more profound way such a more intimate, such a deeper way than even Simeon and Anna did. And Father, I pray that that would motivate us and excite us and and challenge us, Lord, to live a life of active waiting right now. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that because of who you are, waiting is not a waste of time. In fact, waiting can be some of the most precious, most valuable time for us as your children. And God, I pray that you would help us to see it that way. Help us to wait actively, living lives of of obedience and worship and sacrifice because we know that our waiting is not in vain. Our hope is not in vain. Because Jesus, whether it's this afternoon or whether it's in 10 million years, it really doesn't matter because we know that you will come again. You will come again. And may we live each day of this life faithfully to you, knowing that you will return. Thank you so much for the encouragement of your word. Thank you so much for the challenge of your word. Thank you so much for your desire to change us through your word. So may we each live lives of active waiting. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen.